Just a quick reminder before we get into the episode, I will be quoting from Peter Wolleben's The Hidden Life of Trees. So if you hear a citation, that's just for your information so you know where to go in the book if you want to look at it yourself. Appreciate it. second episode of Family Trees. In the first episode, we spent a lot of our time out in the field making observations, inspecting the trees surrounding the meadow, but sometimes it can be hard to see the forest from the trees. So what makes a forest? Was the wood districts a forest, or just a part of the forest at large? Was the meadow a part of the forest, or just an oasis of space within it? As we'll come to understand, forests are complicated biomes in which there's a surprising degree of blurred lines, whether that's the forest boundary lines, or even the lines separating two organisms. So, to understand the forest as a whole, we first have to understand the forest's most important resource, its soil. How does it come to be, and what makes it so valuable? Beginning with bare boulders and stones, powerful geological and climatological forces grind, expand, contract, and fragment larger, tougher stones in a finer sedimentary material. This is then washed away with water to collect in basins, valleys, and various places establishing the base soil. Ecological development then enters the primary succession stage, during which pioneer species such as lichen and moss begin growing on bare rock while producing acids that decompose them into biological building blocks. Larger vascular plants, such as ferns, can then move into the newly established thin soil layer to begin building organic matter content. After a critical soil mass is reached, secondary succession begins to unfold rapidly, in which larger, more woody species begin to become established in the area. Trees are included in this phase, usually thousands of years after the primary phase. Secondary succession can also occur after destructive or disruptive events, such as forest fires, in order to re-establish a healthy ecosystem. Some species actually rely on this pattern to engage dormant seeds, such as carnivorous cones. Forests take this process of accumulating organic matter in soil, both alive and dead, to the extreme, with up to half the biomass of a forest being hidden in its lower story, as well as most species not being visible to the naked eye. Woolleben, Chapter 15, Page 85. These invisible animals include beetle mites, springtails, pseudocentipedes, weevils, and literally countless more. But underlying them all is the shared role as the first link in the food chain. These little buggers feed off dead and decaying organic matter to begin the transformation into humus, which is dead matter's first soil stage that contributes to the soil's retention of moisture and nutrients. There are more life forms in a handful of forest soil than there are people on the planet. A mere teaspoonful contains many miles of fungal filaments. Woolleben chapter 15, page 85. All of this accumulation of organic matter and life forms is made possible by the massive root systems of the trees as well as those of smaller species of herbaceous plants and fungal networks. These networks act as a subterranean glue that keeps the soil safe from erosive forces, but they also serve an even more cohesive purpose, social networking. Yes, you heard me right, even forests love connecting with one another. However, they use the wood wide web instead of the worldwide one. Dr. Suzanne Simard of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver has discovered that they communicate with each other using chemical signals sent through fungal networks around their root tips, and also by means of electrical impulses that travel at a speed of around a third of an inch per second. Well, Leben Chapter 2, page 9. 
These connections go further than just speaking, though. Scientists have discovered that trees of the same species can actually share and exchange nutrient resources with one another, either through mycelial networks or through direct root connection. Will Levin, Chapter 1, Page 2. Fungi that form these mutualistic relationships are called mycorrhizal fungi, and they play a significant role in increasing water and nutrient uptake, especially of phosphorus and nitrogen, as well as filtering out heavy metals and protecting the roots from predatory attack. In exchange for these services, the mushrooms are granted kickbacks from the tree's productions of sugars and carbohydrates. According to the USDA Forest Service, little is known about the mycorrhizae associated with giant and coastal redwoods, but it is known that they form vesicular or buscular mycorrhizae, or VA mycorrhizae, for short. Forest Services provided this definition for VA mycorrhizae. The fungus mycelium ramifies through the cortex of the fine roots and produces the characteristic arbuscles and vesicles. Arbuscles, literally meaning little tree, are finely branched hyphal structures that proliferate within a single cortical cell and function as the exchange site between fungus and host. Vesicles are balloon-shaped and function as storage organs. VA mycorrhizae also proliferate in the soil, but their mycelium is typically colorless and therefore not visible to the unaided eye. That was a lot of words, but essentially, the fungi penetrates into the roots in order to access the phloem, through which the tree transports its nutrients. This exchange between trees can even go so far as to act as life support for stumps that are integral pieces of the forest network. Peter Woleben begins his book with an illustrative discovery he made in the forest he manages, and I actually made a similar discovery in the small river valley mentioned at the end of episode one. coming down into the river valley amazing stuff i was just marveling i was reading the hidden life of trees and in the beginning it just talks about like a stump that is kept alive by the surrounding trees by pumping resources and how it like was covered in moss and then i come down here and there's this amazing trunk that looks just charred but it's covered so it's just black but it's covered in moss um and then in a ring around it there are little tiny I wouldn't say tiny, but like younger redwoods that aren't super matured. So it appears that it got burned because it, it looks like fire damage in here in some places, which is odd. It's very sparse. But in the ring around it, it, it looks like the ring itself is a mass of its old roots. And then when it, the original tree burned, all the peripherals uh, of its roots started, that were safe under the ground started springing up. And then the photosynthesizing they do then feeds this main tree and it acts as like the hub communicating body maybe i'm assuming that's because or they just keep it alive but that's really amazing and like the moss knows too like there's lichen on the outside trees but like the moss sticks on the center tree and i think it preserves it saves it from a lot of water damage because they absorb it i don't know it's very interesting it's very interesting that's quite the find This discovery had me stunned because it perfectly encapsulates how trees will work in unison through the wood wide web to maintain a cohesive and gapless ecosystem. Though it is true that in the example I found, the smaller trees originated from the same mother tree they were feeding, it still illustrates the core example for the tree's philanthropy. In the days before the mother was turned into a stump, she clearly was a massive part of the forest network. So when she fell and the younger trees spread from her roots, they likely kept her alive because she was well connected with the rest of the forest, as well as acting as a central hub for them all. So to summarize, the richness of the forest soil is obtained through thousands of years of fighting ecological entropy in order to trap nutrients and organic matter within it. 
Throughout this fight, plant allies aid in the struggle by trapping these vital resources within their bodies to then later donate them back upon death. The forest defense of the soil is further fortified by the complex networks of root systems and fungal filaments, which not only ensnare otherwise eroded soil, but also further act as a medium of exchange for both nutrients and information. Therefore, every link in the ecosystem is intimately connected within the cycle of soil improvement. Even parasitic and lethal species play a role in removing weak links, whose bodies are then decomposed by fungi and insects in order to nourish the forest floor for later generations. Soil of this caliber and these contents will be required in order to support the wooded giants that are redwoods. These behemoths are marvels to look at, but even giant redwoods must begin as babes. With the soil acting as the womb, a baby redwood sprouts forth, unfurling its leafy branches, eager to begin photosynthesizing. However, this fresh specimen is met by a darkness rather than an abundance of light. This is because old growth forests develop incredibly thorough canopies that absorb 97% of all incoming light, leaving a measly 3% for the vegetation below. For baby redwoods, this is only enough for them to sustain their bodies and repair damages. Due to these restrictions, younglings will develop marginally thicker trunks with little to no air in their wood, branches optimized for absorbing as much light as possible, as well as specialized leaves that are ideal for photosynthesizing at low light levels. All these adaptations leave the waiting saplings incredibly resistant to fungal infection and any bending in their structure. And these little ones haven't been forsaken. Their mother tree will send them additional sugars and carbohydrates through the wood wide web. Though these saplings are eager to get growing, this waiting phase actually ensures that they will live longer lives because it forces them to focus on reinforcements. If you recall my comments on the lower district from episode one. There are some small little redwoods that are growing. So if those keep growing, this the lower district might actually be transformed into another wood district because i mean if you think about it this is actually like a perfect starting area for redwoods little baby redwoods grow up in here shaded they grow slowly and then once they get their heads peaked out that's when they start exploding you know which is the way it normally works in for forest ecosystems so you know that's that's actually an interesting thought I was on the right track, but it turns out the lower district isn't perfect per se. In fact, far from it. The shade produced by the lower district's live oak certainly helped to slow the sapling's growth, but it's far from the 97% reduction in light levels that the deep forest has, meaning it's unlikely that the shading by the oaks plays a significant role in slowing the sapling's development. However, considering the area around the meadow didn't really have any uninterrupted canopies anyway, I mean, hey, it's better than nothing, right? But anyway. After much waiting, even up to a hundred years, suddenly, there's a crack. The mother tree has succumbed to the fungal infection she's been fighting for years, and buckles under the weight of her own crown. The saplings that survived their mother's falling body become bathed with sunlight at full force. The time has come, and it's their shot to become the heir to bear the crown. Over the next couple of years, the specialized low-light leaves subside and fall off to be replaced by those that can metabolize full sunlight. Once food production has reached full capacity, the focus shifts upward and the apical buds kick into high gear, driving the height of the tree up by more than a foot of a year per season. Generally, this varies by species. The competition's fierce, though. 
Throngs of saplings are in the race, so the deciding factor comes down to who grows the straightest and with the largest but most balanced crown. Any deviation from an upright direction will leave a sapling behind its peers, risking further waiting or worse, death and decay back into humus. Competition isn't the only threat, either. As the saplings begin producing more sugars for growth, their buds become tastier to the wildlife and grazing will raise some of the herd. This doesn't apply as much to redwoods, though. However, because all their production is being devoted to growth, the saplings are left vulnerable to disease and infection as they lack their usual energy reserves. Other plants take advantage of this sunbathed opportunity as well. Some vine plants may begin climbing up the growing trees in order to receive more light. As both develop and the trunks widen, the vines wrapped around it constrict it and inevitably strangle the little tree to death. Those that triumph over these challenges will again have their patience tested before the second decade dawns, as the surrounding adult trees have been busy expanding their crowns to cover the gap in the canopy. They enjoy having a bit more room to photosynthesize. But most importantly, they do this to seal the hole in the forest's protective canopy, which if left open would allow winds and turbulent weather to wreak havoc. We'll get to the weather part later, but the winds are a big adversary to giants such as redwoods. A hole in the canopy creates a perfect place for winds to get caught and begin pulling out the high surface area of the tree's upper branches. The thorough coverage of the canopy therefore not only works to absorb as much light as possible, but also as an airtight shield. In an uninterrupted canopy, the trees will move with the winds as a collective unit, and as the wind passes through, the trees will bend into each other, providing mutual support. However, in areas without uninterrupted canopies, such as the wood district we inspected in episode 1, the trees do not have the luxury of leagues of colleagues. It appears that they found a different strategy, though, which is exemplified in the homeless encampment. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting because there's, I would say, anywhere between 5 to like 8, maybe 9 trees growing, some of them small, some of them big, uh, growing in a clump. Then there's some distance, and then there's a new clump of about the same number. Once lone rangers were to grow above the canopy of their immediate surroundings, they'd be forced to brave the winds alone. This would prove a dangerous existence, so they grow in clumps close together so that as the winds blow them, they're forced into their friends who then can help back them in support. In addition to nutrient exchange facilitated by mycorrhizal fungi, growing in clumps like this provides structural advantages, with different trees' roots all intertwining underground, providing a solid foundation. When strong winds blow through, a clump of trees diffuses the gusts so that they are less impactful. So far from what I've observed, though redwoods tend to grow in clumps and circles, I see this more often outside the forest rather than in, where the trees don't need to worry so much about whether or not they'll find protection as, well, they're in a forest. Another interesting connection can be made from our observations in the homeless encampment after the windstorm had blown through. Oh my gosh. Ha! Okay, so the n normal entrance is just annihilated. There are branches everywhere. This branch is so big, I literally cannot fit my whole hand around it. It's, it's, it's that thick, and that one fell. This level of destruction only occurred on the perimeter of trees making up the homeless encampment, with the center of the district almost unscathed. This illustrates how dangerous winds are to unprotected sections of crown. As the winds sweep past the clumps, the inner branches receive little to no effect, but those on the outer edges catch the full force of the wind and are torqued and contorted in unnatural ways. Weaker branches, or those that have overextended, will be punished with a quick snap, leaving the tree at further risk of a fungal infection at the site of the exposed wood. I've hinted at why exposed wood is an opening to infection, but to get more specific, fungi love the moist and sugary phloem just underneath the bark. 
The phloem essentially acts as the blood of the tree, which transports nutrients from the photosynthesizing leaves down to the roots in order to feed them. Fun fact, it is this flow of sugars that is tapped into via maple trees in order to later produce maple syrup. The roots cannot produce their own sustenance, so they require a supply from the crown. Conversely, the crown requires water to photosynthesize, as it is an integral part of the requisite chemical reactions. However, moving water from the soil hundreds of feet up into the air is no easy task. The currently established culprits are capillary action, osmosis, and transpiration. Capillary action is what's responsible for that raised portion of your coffee that climbs the edge of your mug. This is due to the polarity of water and its resulting surface tension, and the smaller the cylinder, the higher capillary action takes the water column. In trees, hollow straw-like structures in the xylem, called vessels, transport water up to the crown. These can range from 0.02 inches wide in deciduous trees to 0.0008 inches wide in carnivorous trees, but capillary action still only accounts for three feet of the water's journey upward. Woleb in chapter 10, page 56. Similarly weak in performance is osmosis, which is the process of water moving from cells of low solute concentration to those of higher concentration, ultimately equalizing the concentrations of both. Though this plays a significant role in the functioning of roots and leaves, it only occurs in these locations and cannot account for the movement of fluids in other parts. The last possible explanation is transpiration. The water trees sweat, or release while they breathe. The water exits their stoma, holes on the undersides of leaves, leaving less water in the leaves than there was before. This creates a pressure differential that then draws water up from the roots. So that solves the riddle, right? Well, not quite. Water pressure in trees is highest before the leaves open in spring, and it is this heightened rush of water saturated with sugars that makes maple syrup harvest possible. Yet, at this stage, there are still no leaves on the trees, so transpiration isn't to blame for the transportation, and capillary action and osmosis surely aren't to blame. So, the riddle of the tree's water translocation and how it transpires remains to this day. One of the most refreshing aspects of the forest is its fresh air. There's something special about it, crisp, clean, and invigorating. You can feel a lightness in your mood and step as though you've been inflated with it like a balloon. It's somewhat obvious that a place with countless trees would have clean air, but there's more to the invisible stuff than meets the lungs. The air holds the second most important factor of the forest's survival, its climate. As was mentioned prior, Humus has excellent water retention, which is further compounded by the tree's thick canopy. Acting as an impenetrable wind block, it reduces the water loss due to evaporation, as well as acting as a shield from the sun, sparing the soil below from a baking bask. This all creates a microclimate within the forest that can be significantly cooler and moister than that of the conditions surrounding it. However, when a mother tree falls and creates an opening in the canopy, desiccating winds and sun can penetrate into the forest and begin sucking out moisture. This is why trees surrounding the gap don't just expand their crowns for photosynthesis, as was mentioned earlier, but also to protect the precious microclimate that is integral to maintaining the ecosystem. Branches and leaves also catch pollutants, pollens, and other pesky particles on their massive surface areas. The trees don't just remove, but also add. Many trees are capable of releasing phytoncides, literally meaning exterminated by the plant. These chemicals are antimicrobial compounds capable of deterring and even killing microbes and insects, as well as affecting the behavior of organisms of similar or even different species in, in the favor of the trees. 
We've already discussed how trees communicate through their root systems, but these messages only travel at a third of an inch per second, which can be far too slow if lethal danger is imminent. This is why trees use scent carried on wind as a quick means of sending messages to their friends. A fun example of this is the acacia trees on the savannas of Africa. When giraffes begin munching on the acacia leaves, the trees will begin pumping toxins into the leaves in order to deter predatory herbivores. This takes a few minutes though, so the tree that falls prey will release ethylene into the wind as a warning sign that other trees can then detect, from which they'll understand to begin producing toxins as well. This is why the giraffes will either move far away to unaware trees or simply just move upwind. All these factors further the connections between forest organisms beyond the realm of the tangible and into the realm of the invisible, but the effects are no less palpable in the latter. So that was a lot of information about trees, but in all honesty, it kind of needed to be. From the soil up to the leaves and even to the air on the breeze, there's organisms and organic molecules hard at work keeping an ecosystem stable. So knowing what we know now, it's clear to see why the question of what makes a forest has an ambiguous answer. The individual organisms within the forest are incredibly codependent, as is illustrated by the fact that the mycorrhizal fungi can't survive without their host trees which only get as big as they do because of the increased nutrient uptake via their fungal friends. The boundaries of what defines a forest are a little more clear, wherever the microclimate can be maintained. But then again, when a mother tree dies and leaves a hole in the canopy, you can't say that that's no longer a part of the forest. Additionally, when people think of a forest, the picture of dirt rarely comes to mind, but that's where all the magic happens. So is our answer actually this anticlimactic? Well, I think it'd be wrong to look at it that way. This abundance of life can only be balanced by an equally abundant reliance on death. A grim fact, but that's the beauty of the forest. After reflecting on what I've observed throughout my time in the field, the message I received from the trees was that life thrives on change. Biologically, it's the driving factor behind evolutionary progression, which is how relationships such as those between fungi and plants came to be in the first place. And philosophically, beauty inevitably brings forth desires for preservation the wish that such marvelous things would persist forever. And yet, it's the fleeting nature of beautiful things that makes them so precious. Forests hold this wisdom within them, and even have overcome the despair of loss by blooming forth new life from the ashes of the past, a lesson taught to us by the carnivorous cone, a metaphorical phoenix. Generation after generation venture forth into the future, whether they be leafy or meaty. Branches break and so do hearts, and yet the trees as well as us live on, mending what once was lost. I don't mean to get all sappy, though I do mean to pun, but it's hard not to get lost in the thoughts amongst the family trees. So if you get the chance, take a walk through the forest, breathe some fresh air, think a little, and don't sweat the small stuff, because the big guys certainly don't. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks for listening.